You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I read this week about a man named Eric Mambue. Eric Mambue runs a charity in the Central African Republic, the CAR. Most of us probably don't have a whole lot of knowledge or familiarity with the CAR, but Eric Mambue runs a ministry, a charity, an organization called War Child. Eric Mambue runs this organization and its effort is to rescue and redeem child soldiers from this war-torn area. Central African Republic has been run frequently by warlords and different tribal chieftains and corrupt governments and what have you. And he writes about a young boy pictured here named Boku. Now, Boku is not actually his real name. I don't know why he couldn't have called him Trevor or Steve, but he called him Boku. It's not a real name. Nonetheless, this is Boku. And when Boku was 10 years old, his village was slaughtered. He watched as his parents and all of the other adults in his village were killed. And this weapon was placed in his hands at the age of 10. And he was told by this warlord, join me and serve me or you die. And all of these others will die as well. And so Boku found himself under the rulership of a new lord, as it were. This warlord led an organization called the Lord's Resistance Army ironically. And this band of thugs and criminals would go around looking for Muslim villages and would slaughter all of them. They were also fighting against, with machetes, the United Nations peacekeeping forces. And Boku was a part of that. Now this warlord uh, was said to have some mystical, magical powers. He claimed to be impervious and invincible to bullets, that he could not be shot, he could not be killed, and to have mind control over all of his soldiers. And he would torment them, and he would abuse them. And so Boku served this rulership. This was the realm in which he lived for years and years and years. But then, one day, Boku's warlord, this tribal chieftain was shot and he was killed. He was dead. Let me repeat that. He died. He no longer lived. Are, we, are you hearing what I'm saying? His leader was killed. He was shot dead. He no longer lived. And so Eric Mambue, this leader of this war child organization, they rescued Boku. But he writes about it being an incredibly hard rescue, an incredibly difficult redemption, an incredibly frustrating rehabilitation. Boku was characterized by confusion and fear and rage and vengeance and violence. It's all the boy had ever known. It's all he could remember. He was also most terrified that his warlord chief would return that he would come back and he would torture him and punish him and abuse him and rule over him all over again. So Eric Mambue and the War Child Organization had to convince him that while it was true that he had been guilty of all of these war crimes, he was now forgiven and that he had been transferred to a different rule 
of authority in his life. Eric wrote this, that the, the difficulties were finally broken when Boku finally believed that his warlord was dead. That was the final nail. When he finally believed that the warlord was dead, then the healing and the reconciliation and the redemption and the rehabilitation could begin. This new rule, this new authority that Boko was under was actually for him, not to harm him, not to bring him pain and misery, not to use him as an instrument of evil, but it was for him, for his good, for his betterment, for his growth, for his maturation. He was free. The Boku that used to live no longer did. Now that is precisely the way that the gospel has broken into millions of lives for the last 2,000 years since the Apostle Paul has written his letter to the churches in Rome. Just like Boku, who was pardoned for his crimes, but then he had to learn to live in the light of that new freedom and that new identity. So too must the Christian. You heard Matt say it earlier. Being a Christian is learning to live one's forgiveness. Thinking differently, feeling deeply about who and whose we are. For those that have been justified, they must also be sanctified. In other words, leads us to our big idea, our summary synthesis for our time together in the book of Romans. And it goes like this. We are transferred from death to life. That's Paul's thesis of this entire passage that we're going to read this morning. We are transferred from death to life past tense. We are transferred from death to life. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them with me, to the book of Romans chapter 6. We're going to walk through these first 14 verses together very briefly. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 14. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you that the overarching theme of the book of Romans, which is an encapsulation of the entire Bible, the theme of the book of Romans goes like this. It is the righteousness of God given freely in the per, to man in the person of Jesus Christ. The currency of God's kingdom is righteousness, and we are bereft and bankrupt. But the righteousness of God is given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a person, not a set of beliefs. So we've been in Romans this entire semester thus far. We're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, and then we'll try to unpack it briefly. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. This passage is the perfect proclamation of the gospel, that refrain that we like to say at this campus. The gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. Now Paul turns the corner as we get here to Romans chapter 6. He moves from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. And I get it. These are churchy words. Justification, sanctification, yada, yada, yadaification. I get it. But these words mean something. These words absolutely matter. I mean, I know, I know it's 2019. We don't want to argue about doctrine anymore. We just want to love one another. Well, good luck with all of that because when the dark nights of the soul come, we have to think rightly and feel deeply about our God, who He is and what He has done, or we will follow all kinds of errant experiences trying to make sense of our lives and we'll find ourselves dying in a pile. These words matter. These words mean something. These words, justification and sanctification, are suitcases packed full of meaning that have immediate impact on our lives. One of the things that I encounter most frequently is that Christians think wrongly about themselves and therefore live under a miserable burden of error. This passage is intended to cut all of those cords. Justification, that we have been found guilty, dead to rights, but God says, I declare you righteous. Despite all of the evidence to the contrary, I say you are righteous. Sanctification then, how does this actually fit into uh, connection with justification? I've heard it said, we are justified by grace, but we have to grit our teeth and sanctify. Not biblical. So Paul turns a corner. We looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3, the doctrine of condemnation. Whether you're in chapter 1, 2, or 3, we're all in there. We've all been found guilty. Ah, but chapters 4 and 5, the doctrine of justification. Now we turn the corner and we're going to start talking about sanctification. How then shall we live? If we have been found guilty and declared righteous, what difference does that practically make in my life on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday night? How then shall we live? So we're going to walk back through this very, very briefly. We're going to emphasize the first four verses and we'll just very briefly summarize verses 5 to 14. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Some of you who have been here since the beginning of our Roman series, let me reintroduce you to my friend, Murray. Murray's back. If you're visiting, you're going, who's Murray? I don't see Murray. Murray is what we call the imaginary objector. As Paul writes the book of Romans, he is doing so in the literary style called diatribe. It's where he sets up an imaginary objector and he has a conversation with this guy who doesn't actually exist, but it's the articulation of the objections that are probably coming from some very religious, legalistic people in the churches at Rome. We call him Murray. He's the imaginary objector. And Murray articulates and voices the question that people have been asking in the church for 2,000 years. And maybe you've asked this question before. Maybe you're in a season of asking this question right now. Well, if I've been found guilty but declared righteous, then what difference does it make how I live? Voltaire says, 
God has to forgive, I have to sin. We have a wonderful arrangement. Maybe some of you feel that way. Or maybe you're on the other side of the coin. If people get grace freely, then what's to keep them from going all kinds of cray-cray? What's going what's to hem in their behavior, keep them from acting out in all sorts of deviant and depraved ways? What's going to happen? Well, if you don't impose some sort of law and rule, people are going to go crazy. Is Christianity, Paul, the system of religion that actually destroys the fabric of society? Oh, quite the contrary, Paul will say, as he addresses this imaginary objector. Verse 2. By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Paul uses his absolutely strongest negative that he can say. May it never even be conceived. Of course not. You're totally misunderstanding. What's in Paul's mind is all sorts of Old Testament references, and I think not to mention our famous story in Luke chapter 15 of what we call the prodigal son. It's really the prodigal God. You remember the story, the younger brother in Luke chapter 15 runs off to a far country. He squanders his father's wealth. He goes through some really depraved times, finds himself face down in a pigsty eating husks that pigs wouldn't even eat, and finally comes to the end of himself, rock bottom, repents and runs home. And the father kills the fatted calf and puts the robe on him, puts the ring on his finger. The big brother mumbles. But then let's just say about a year or two goes by. And little brother gets bored. Gosh, I sure kind of liked being the center of attention. Maybe I'll run off to the far country again and do all that over again so that my father will forgive me. Because that was cool. Of course not. If he's entertaining those thoughts, then that means he never actually understood forgiveness to begin with. This is Paul's point. Of course not. All of this, Paul's going to say, this death language, this life language, all of this is about being transferred from one realm to another. If the prodigal son behaved that way, it would be a demonstration that he was never actually transferred from one realm to another. Let me just, in a nutshell, summarize this Romans 6, 1 to 14 by saying this. It is all about being transferred from the rule of one realm to the rule of another realm. That's it. That's the nutshell of what Paul is trying to explain. It's Boku. Your former warlord is dead. You've been transferred, Boku, to the rule of another realm. You are no longer under its authority where it was trying to harm you and kill you and use you for evil. You've been transferred to the rule of a completely different realm. That's what has happened to us. Last year, or sorry, last week, Matt McGill led us through the second half of Romans chapter 5, and he told us rightly from that passage that there are essentially two realms in the cosmos. There is that realm that was inaugurated by Adam, that realm in Adam, which all people come into this world in Adam, that realm is characterized by sin and death. And then there's another realm, the second realm, instituted and initiated by the last Adam, Jesus Christ at his first coming. And that realm is constituted and characterized by life and righteousness. That's it. Those are the only two realms. And if you are a Christian, what Paul's trying to say is, you have been transferred from the rule of that realm in Adam to the rule of Christ. There's only two. That's the truth about you, whether you feel it, fully experience it, understand it or not, it's true. And so Paul's now gonna help us to understand it. He says, there again, in verse two, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this has caused so many Christians so many problems and confusions. 
Because I hear Christians say, well, but I'm a Christian. Why am I still struggling with sin? The Bible says I died to it, but I feel very much alive to it. Let me remind you. Biblically, death is always, always separation, not extinction. Now, just that one misunderstanding has plagued so many of God's people. Death is never extinction. It is separation. That's why at your physical death, it is your material and your immaterial, your body and your soul being pulled apart in an unnatural horror that was never God's purpose and plan. That's physical death. It's a separation of material and immaterial, physical and spiritual. The ultimate death is the separation of our person from God for all eternity. Also a horrifying thing that God never, ever wanted. Death is separation. It is not extinction. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. All of our guilt was heaped on Christ. He paid the price. The warrant for our arrest and execution was nailed to the cross of Christ. That's Colossians 2. The penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. But the presence of sin remains. Rescued from the penalty, rescued from the power, but the presence lingers yet. And Christian, you need to know that. The presence is there. It's been separated, but it is still there. But something nonetheless has happened to us. The Christian is separated from the power of sin. When non-Christians sin, they have no choice. That's all they do. Even when they're good and moral and decent, and they vote the right way, and they live on the right side of the street, and they drive just the right size SUV, it's all sin. Because that's all they can do. Sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. A Christian, however, when they sin, it's simply because he or she wants to. That's all. Maybe they have drifted back to apathy and they have forgotten that the old warlord is dead and they're just lazy, not thinking rightly, feeling deeply. Or maybe they're in a season of just willful rebellion saying, I don't believe that God has given me every good and perfect thing that I need. He's holding out on me. I have ultimate FOMO. I'm going to grasp something for myself. But when a Christian sins, it's because they want to, not because they have to. Now that's really, really telling. Paul is not saying that it is impossible for a Christian to ever sin. He says, how can we who are died to sin still sin? What he is saying is it is impossible for a Christian to ever sin and have a perpetual, persistent lifestyle of sin. That would indicate that they have never actually been transferred from one realm to another. If the persistence of sin remains and there's no conviction or no repentance of any sort whatsoever, that's evidence that the transferal never actually occurred and that that power of that sin has never actually been broken. So now, how does that happen, Paul? How? How can that power actually be broken? He says in verse 3, Do you not know? I See, that's such a sweet, sanitized translation. He literally says, Are you so ignorant? See, Paul can say that. I, I would never say that. Are you ignorant? Is what we would say up in the painting. Are you ignorant, boy? How do you not know this? It's a very strong question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is where we get to celebrate and really sort of explode just a moment the glories of what it means to have union with Christ. To have union with, I was going to subtitle this sermon, with, 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 because that word is all over these three paragraphs. It's with Christ, with Christ, with Christ. This is what it means to be with him. 
Being a Christian is so much more than merely agreeing with intellectually or academically a certain set of propositional truths. Being a Christian is so much more than saying, mm-hmm, let's see, do that, I get that, carry the one, okay. Yes, I agree, now I'm a Christian. That's a distinctly non-biblical definition of what it means to be a Christian. The fundamental difference between being under the rule of that realm and being under the rule of that realm can't occur simply because I agree with some ideas or some doctrines. Something has to be done to me, with me, at me. Something occurs with me. Paul uses this word, baptizomai, where we get our word for baptism. It is a passive verb. I don't do anything. I am the recipient of a thing that God does. And baptizomai means to immerse, to envelop, to engulf. Now, please hear what I'm saying. I don't just agree with some truths. God does a thing. He buries me in Jesus, zips me into, if you will, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, longed for in the Old Testament. I am immersed. I am buried into Jesus himself. No, not his physiological body. That's gross. That was a long time ago. No, 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 no. Better than that. We are baptized, immersed, enveloped, and engulfed into the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this Immersion. It is a shorthand. It's sort of a, an abbreviation for all that conversion is and means. We symbolize it in water baptism. But please make no mistake, Paul does have in mind water baptism. Not that it actually saves. God's not present in the water per se. But the New Testament knows no unbaptized Christian. Because baptism was such a symbol of being immersed, enveloped, buried in the person of Jesus that the New Testament knows no unbaptized Christian. And I can see some of your wheels turning right now going, "Uh uh-huh, 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 what about the thief on the cross? Well, for starters, that was inconvenient. He was nailed to a tree. So it's a little bit tough to respond to that call when you're like, ah, nails. Not only that, at that point, Jesus had not died, was not buried, was not resurrected. He was not a New Testament believer per se. Oh, he believed he's an Old Testament saint. The New Testament knows no unbaptized Christian because it is a proclamation publicly in the New Covenant community of the Spirit that we were alive, we've been dead, buried, immersed into the death of Jesus. And he's going to talk a whole lot more about this. Again, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. He does not mean extinction. He means separation. We are associated, we are affiliated, we were immersed in Christ and he died. He was dead, dead. Not mostly dead all day. He was dead. And we are buried, immersed in him. Now, let me get as practical as I can. I hear this so very much in our day and age. Christians dealing with addictions. Some of them are socially acceptable. Some of them are not socially acceptable. Some of them are right in the middle. And the refrain of the 21st century is that addiction, pure and simple, is a disease. It is a disease, meaning it is a pathological problem that you cannot control. That is the warp and the woof of the message of our world, that addiction is a disease that you have no choice over. It's like diabetes or lupus. And you can no more address or control your addiction than you can just choose to have your pancreas produce more insulin. If that's true, then what difference does transferal and transformation actually make in the life of a Christian? 
I refuse to believe that addiction is pure and simple a disease. Am I saying that Christians don't struggle? I'm not saying that because this Christian does. But what I'm saying is that the transformation, the immersion, the engulfing into the person of Jesus Christ who is separated from sin and death must mean something. I'm not saying that it removes your diabetes or your coronary artery disease. I'm not saying that. I'm saying when it comes to addictive issues in our hearts and minds, the transferal from the rule of one realm to the rule of another realm must mean something. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm saying the power has been broken. Paul says in verse three, we have been baptized in him with his death. We are separate. We are no longer under that warlord. Hey, Boku, he's dead. He's dead. You are not under his rulership any longer. Verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Forensically, judicially, legally, this actually occurred. We were buried with Christ by immersion or union with him. Burial is that final seal or proof of death. This happened. So that, Paul says, just as Christ is alive by the power or the glory of God the Father, we too have been raised already and not yet to walk in newness of life. There's something different about us because we've been transferred from the rule of one realm to the rule of another realm, from death to life. And this, let me, let me, let me just get as preachy as I can for just a moment. Some of you are visiting with us this morning. Just tolerate for a moment. What Paul says in Romans chapter six, verse four, is so massive and enormous. I cannot overstate it, which means, of course, I'm now going to try to overstate it. If you have been buried with Christ in his death, if you've ever been appropriated or associated or affiliated with Christ in his death, Paul says, then you absolutely, certainly are associated with his resurrection. You can't have one and not the other. If you have ever been associated with Christ in his death, had union with Christ in his death, then you are absolutely also associated with his life meaning you can't unchrist yourself. We call that, technically, the doctrine of eternal security. If you have died with Christ, then just as much as Jesus is alive, so too will you forever be. I know that might go against some of our traditions or denominational teachings, but hear me, Romans chapter 6, verse 4 is a smoking gun. Paul says, if you have ever been associated with his death, then you will certainly be associated with his life. You can't undo them any more than you can unbaptize yourself. You can't do that because it was done to you. It is a passive verb. I would wave my arms and hoot and holler all the more if I could. I want that to be sufficient. This is the gospel. If it's ever been true, then it is eternally true. Now, how might that translate the way you live your life differently? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm in Christ. Yeah, I, I'm allowing myself to, no, no, it's finished. I am buried with him. It's dead. I am alive with him. It's finished already and not yet. Very quickly, verse five and following. This is a, most people agree that verses five to 11 is Paul getting so excited about this that he just amplifies and unpacks the first four verses all over again. So I'll be very brief here at verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, 
There's, there's, there's no ambiguity here. This is as strong affirming language as Paul can possibly use. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Listen, this is so amazing. The one bit of the physical universe that has already been completely set right is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you think about Jesus now, but Jesus is not this disembodied spirit floating around in heaven going, he's a human being, a physiological, material human being, and he is perfectly set right. And we are in him. God views us in him. That is an amazing, amazing truth. We have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Now this has caused so many Christians, so many problems. Let me be brief. I hear Christians say, well, I'm really struggling with this pattern of sin. It's my old nature. I know what you mean. Stop it. There's no such thing as your old nature. It's not a biblical idea. It's some things that we try to say to help us understand some difficult concepts. You only have one nature. You are one consciousness. You are one person. What Paul's talking about here in this entire passage is you have been transferred from death to life. The old man that he's talking about here is the one who was under the lordship of that old realm and rule. And that was crucified with Christ. The warlord's dead, y'all. It's not that you have a different nature now and you've bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born. I get you, thank you. Pretty awesome song. You've only got one nature. Forensically, judicially, the one that was under that realm, that one was crucified with Christ. No, you weren't actually there 2,000 years ago. The you that was under that rule of realm is now dead and gone. It was placed in the tomb with Christ. It was dead and he has risen and you have risen with him. Now this ought to change the way we think about ourselves. I'm not just aw shucks trying to sneak in the side door of heaven smelling of smoke. It's an errant, errant self-evaluation. May it never be. Six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul's calling on some wonderful Old Testament language. There are two alpha moments of your Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is Israel who is rescued from the rule of a realm in Egypt. And what happens with them? They are led through death into life and they emerge under the rule of a new realm in the promised land. They're in bondage to Egypt. They're led through the waters of death into life under the rule of a new realm. In the New Testament, it's called the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. True Israel is led from out of death through the tomb and he emerges to walk in newness of life. Paul wants to point to both of those. It's Jesus. The Exodus leads to thinking about Messiah. The resurrection of Jesus shows that God is faithful. We are in that resurrection in true Israel. No, not through the Red Sea, through the very chasm of death, Paul says. Verse 7 for one who has died has been set free from sin. It's broken. Sin has no mastery over Jesus. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? Sure, as soon as Jesus sins. As soon as he falls, you will. And it cannot happen. He cannot be ungodded. That is eternal security everlasting certainty. 
Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, that should be since. Both verse 7 and verse 8. Trust me in the syntactical Greek nonsense here. It's since, not if. Now, since we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Jesus was not like Jairus' daughter or poor Lazarus, who, yay, they got to die again. That's a bad day. Oh, here we go again. Their bodies were still corrupted, still frail and fallen and fragile, not Jesus. Do you see? He's the one bit of the physical universe that is perfectly set right. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And therefore, Christian, you either. For the death he died, he died to sin. He is separate from it, fully and forever. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives perfectly Godward. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 11 is the hinge of the entire passage. Here's the imperative. You must consider. You must reckon. You must reconcile. This is an accounting term. I am the worst human being on the planet for accounting and numbers and math. Trust me. But that's also why I like this. You must consider, you must reckon, you must reason yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You must decide and remember this is who you are. It's not a new discovery. That's not how accounting works, so I'm told. It's pulling all of the pieces of the numbers that are there in place and putting them together to see something that already exists. I have this number and this number and this number and I'm adding them together and I'm told that you actually come up with a sum. It's there. It's not a new discovery. It's an assembly of what is already there. You have been transferred from death to life. Paul says, reckon it, consider it, understand it, process. Think thus. Think thus. Feel thus. Alive to God and dead to sin. Oh, I don't know. I've still got these struggles. Stop it. It's not biblical. It's not who who God says that you are. Very briefly, verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. (laughs) It's like Boku going back and being a child soldier even though the warlord is dead and the war is over. Don't do that. It's bad for you. Don't think that way. You have been set free. Live like you're forgiven. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You have been transferred from death to life, from the rule of that realm to the rule of this realm. Live here. Live here. Stop listening to the bombarding messaging of your media construct that says you actually should live back under this. No, 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 no. Martin Luther, when he would feel the accusation of the enemy against him, he would scream, Baptizum sum! (laughs) Baptizum sum! I am baptized with. Yes, I am guilty, you devil. What of it? Away from me. I am baptized with. I don't know if you talk to yourself that way, but David Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. He said, Christian, you must talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Because if all you're ever doing is listening to yourself, you will drift back into the rule of this realm and it is sin and death and you will die in a pile. Talk to yourself. I am baptized with. I am alive forevermore. Yes, I am guilty. I am declared righteous. What of it? 
and that will change your living. You don't have to be controlled by a code of conduct or a moral law. Oh, no, 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 Paul says so. Verse 14, for sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You have been transferred from trying to keep some code of conduct. You are alive in Christ Jesus everlastingly. So, we could literally spend months and months and months here, but I kind of like having a church, so we're going to move forward. We're going to do this very, very quickly. Let me just give three very quick concluding implications from this passage. Number one goes like this. Sin remains, but it must not reign. Sin remains, yes, it's present, but it must not reign perhaps one of the most vexing parts of the Christian life. I get it. If I'm saved, then why do I continue to struggle with sin? Wasn't that part of me crucified? Well, the issue is time, and time's a tough one. We are presently bound by time. We exist in the already and the not yet. Positionally, we are in Christ. That's the realm in which we live as far as God is concerned. We're in Christ. And so God is not disappointed. He is not disapproving of you and me. But what would you do? What would you do if you saw Boku pick up an AK-47 and go back to the village to live that way? You would say, no, 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 I beg you, you're free. Don't go back to that. It's bad for you. I love you. I've rescued you. Please do not go back to that. But sin will always be an issue until we finally experience physical death. Did you know, Christian? Sin has no dominion. Death has no dominion over you. Your death, which is probably not going to feel awesome. I can see that. But your death is nothing more than the final separation forever of your sin. Can you imagine? You're supposed to. What would you be like with no sin whatsoever? I'm telling you, my physical death is going to be a big, big job for God. That's a lot he's got to lift out of there. But he's going to already and not yet. Sin remains, but it must not reign. You and I will struggle, but sin is not our master. The warlord is dead. You and I have been transferred from death into life. Second point, very quickly, and I know this is vexing to some of you who come out of different traditions, but it goes like this. When we're talking about sanctification, it goes like this. Be, not do. I know that sounds like Sunday morning, Yoda speak. I don't mean for it to be. I hear Christians all the time saying, okay, well, I was saved, yeah, but now I have to do all these things. I have to have a quiet time. I have to practice fasting. I have to do giving. I have to do all these things. I have to pray four times a day. I have to face Northwest because that's where Oregon is or whatever you come up with. No, 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 no. It's not about doing anything because if it's about you doing anything, then it's about you and your responsibility and it won't be long before you will die in a pile. No, no, it is simply being. You are immersed, you are enveloped, you are baptized with Christ. So literally, I just, I'm begging you, please be free of trying to do all this good and moral and decent stuff just so that you can try to win God's favor or just because it's the right thing to do out of obligation. You will be a calcified soul and miserable to be around. Be, not do. Instead, Paul says, reckon, consider, think rightly, feel deeply, long and frequently that you have a life in Christ. His high priestly prayer in John 17 is that you would enjoy this life with his enjoying. Now that's good. Third point. <laughs> this got me this week, and maybe it's because of all the jet lag and the seven day a week eating of cabbage while I was traveling. 
Third point, I'm Boku. And maybe you are too. I continued to read the story of Eric Mambui as he was talking about this child soldier that he rescued. And he just couldn't quite bring him around. He couldn't free him from all of these things until finally Eric Mambui tells the story that he settled him down, that he put his hands on Boku's face and looked him right in the eyes and said, Boku, you are forgiven. He says, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I've seen. The people that I have killed, the countless that I have harmed and hurt and abused. You don't understand. I carry all of this weight. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what I've done. And Eric said, I tell you, you are forgiven. There is nothing held against you. And he writes that the boy just crumpled and cried, which is what I did in seat 25D as I read this this week and sitting on a plane. It's like, oh, that's my story. Like Nobody knows what I've done and said and thought. Serially, repeatedly, deeply, profoundly, things of which I am ashamed. How could I be the kind of guy that? And the son of God puts his hands on my face and says, you are you don't know what I've done. I know. You don't understand. I did it more than what I know. You are forgiven, Boku. You have been baptized with. You were dead with me. And I am raised to walk in newness of life. And then Jesus says, go. We're good. That's what it means to be baptized. I did not know way back when we scheduled our believer's baptism service that we were going to fall on Romans chapter 6. The Lord is sovereign. I didn't know how this was going to end up, but here we are having believer's baptism. So those who are about to be baptized, I will invite you to go ahead and queue up and line up. We're going to have believer's baptism, and I enjoy you to celebrate the public identification of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of a life in Christ. This is why we practice baptism by immersion. Immersion to symbolize the enveloping, the complete covering of the life of Jesus Christ. This is also why we do it in public. You don't get to baptize yourself at home in your, bat in your bathtub. That's just weird. We are the new covenant community of the Spirit. This is how we do together. So that you will always be reminded, Baptizum sum, I am baptized with. And so that those around you in your community will say, Hey, I saw you bubble. Why are you still fighting that? You have been baptized with. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. So would you join me as we celebrate Believer's Baptism together? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.